turn this morning in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel. And I'm very excited that we're going to be beginning this study this morning. For those of you who are visiting, we, we have in the life of our church to this point, we have preached all the way through the Gospel of Mark, which was a lengthy study. It took more than a year. And then we moved from Mark's gospel into the letter of James, uh, the epistle of James in the New Testament. And uh, we have recently, only a couple of weeks ago, completed that study according to God's grace. And so we are now going to be going way back, as it were. Uh, in Mark's gospel would have been written most likely, I think, in the mid to late 50s A.D., And then a little before that, James, his letter would have been penned probably somewhere in the 40s A.D. 1 Samuel, however, would have been written over a longer period of time, to be sure, because of the nature of the accounts that are found there. But it probably was not compiled in its completed form that we have now in Scripture, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, until maybe the 8th century B.C. So we're headed way back, and it comprises... Events that span the period just after the judges and in between the period of the judges and the beginning of the monarchy in Israel. So it is the time period between the judges and the kings. So that even in the ordering of our Old Testament, you see that we have uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and then Joshua, where God's people are led into the promised land there. And then you have Judges, where God is... uh, delivering and redeeming and teaching and leading his people through these men, these judges. And the period of judges of the judges comes to an end. And there is this period between the ending of the judges and then the institution of the monarchy in Israel, where no longer are God's people to be led by a judge, but they are going to be led by a king. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But that's what First Samuel is about. And so it's about God's leading and dealing with and working among his people uh, in this time period as he is faithful to them and uh, redeeming them and leading and moving in them. Uh, I'm not going to do too much by way of introduction for 1 Samuel. There is a lot that could be said, but the reality, I think, is that as we go chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this book, Uh, As we read the stories, it's a historical narrative, and I love my favorite type of scripture to preach is narrative because it's simply the telling of a story. And uh, as we consider the narratives that are here together, what we're going to find is that all of the history and all of the information and all of the themes that I would give you by way of introduction this morning, they're going to become apparent to us. Um, I do, however, want to tell you a little bit about some of the key themes that are going to be found. Uh, And it's in light of, uh, it's very pertinent to the the, the period in, into which this book is written. And so if you go back to the very end of Judges, in your Bibles it's probably just a few verses back, um, a, few, a few pages back, you'll have Ruth between Judges and Samuel. The very last chapter of Judges is chapter 21, and the very last verse of the last chapter, it is a bit depressing. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a, strange way for a book in the Bible to end. And what it says in Judges chapter 21 verse 10 says, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that is the refrain of the book of Judges, that God's people would go astray in sin and they would be found in deep unrighteousness and transgression. And God would 
raise up a judge to judge them and deliver them and lead them in a righteous path. But ultimately, all of those judges were imperfect sinners, and ultimately they all would die. And so then the judge would die, and inevitably sin would creep back into the lives and the hearts of God's people, and they would find themselves delving back into sin. And then this process would repeat where God would raise up a judge. And so there is this refrain all through the book of Judges in the time period of the judges that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the point then is is they were not doing what was right in God's eyes. And God was having to send a judge to, to tell them what was right and to get them back into a path of righteousness. But you notice there it also says that in, the, in those days there was no king in Israel. Well, that's looking forward to the kingship that is coming, okay? And, and what happened is that in the midst of all of the turmoil in Israel, the, the nation of Israel, they looked around at all of the... The the peoples who surrounded them, they looked around at the nations that were around them and the people with whom they had some experience, and and they became very jealous. And they began to look and see these other nations who were ruled by these kings, and and they were protected. And, And they were fortified cities and nations, and they began to long for a king in Israel. The problem, friends, though, is they had a king in Israel, didn't they? And their king was the Lord their God. And so there is this theme then that emerges that everyone did what was right in his own eyes because they did not acknowledge the king that was in Israel. And so one of the key themes of Samuel, as we move to the institution of the monarchy and the kingship over Israel, one of the first and most important themes that we're going to see is the kingship, the sovereign ruling kingship of God over his people. Now, they're going to continue to long for a king. And when we move forward, if you go to 1 Samuel chapter 8, what we're going to see there is that the Israelites, they again come to the leaders, the the religious leaders among them. They demand a king. They long for a king. And they demand that, 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 that there be a king appointed over them, that they would be protected and provided for the way that the way that the other countries around them were. Well, God was protecting and providing for them. And so there is a sense in which they are demanding a king and their demand is an act of great sin. But what we're going to see is that God in his mercy and grace, both as an act of judgment and as an act of grace, he gives them their request, doesn't he? He gives them a king and they're going to end up with Saul, who is not going to honor God and is not going to lead them to know him and to honor him. But you know, he's going to come after Saul, don't you? It's going to be King David. Because, see, God's going to put a king on the throne, um, and he is going to establish his kingdom, and that kingdom will last forever. And so there is this theme, then, that we're going to see begin to emerge very quickly, um, the sovereign kingship of God. And then secondly, there is, and tied to that, is his gracious and generous providential care for his people. And actually, those things are going to come right to the fore in the first 20 verses of chapter 1 this morning. The idea that there is a king over our hearts, people. that there is a king in Israel. What must be done is we must acknowledge his kingship and we must patiently endure his providential care and grace in our lives and we must depend and look to him for strength and for grace and for mercy and for salvation. And so let's then turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 
We're just going to jump right in. We're going to look at the first 20 verses, and we're going to come to know a, a family right off the bat here, the family of Elkanah. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we read these verses. God in heaven, when I pray that in my weakness today that your strength would abound, uh, that your people would be built up, and ultimately that you might be glorified. Father, open our hearts, we beg you. Give us ears to hear and help us to use them. Give us minds full of knowledge and understanding uh, that we may know the gospel that we may see Christ in these pages, that we might honor your kingship over us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 1 Samuel chapter 1 says, There was a certain man of Ramathiam Zaphim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth. He was an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, And the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year as often as she went up to the house of the Lord. She used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed, and she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So this is a wonderful, I have some, thank you. This is a wonderful account of God's gracious hand of favor and kindness in the lives of one of his children. 
Friends, we come to know this family of Elkanah who has two wives, one of whom is Hannah. And Hannah is one of the godliest women in all of the Bible. She's one of the, one of the most faithful and humble women that we come to know in all of the scriptures. And so what I want us to do simply is to first try to answer the, the question, what do we learn about and from Hannah in these verses? And that's who we want to look at. I mean, there are a lot of things that could be said about the first 20 verses here, but I think they sort of begin and end with this character, Hannah, and what's going on in her life. Because remember, the period of Judges, the book of Judges, it closed with the refrain that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone dealt with their problems their own way. And, and that God's people longed for a king, and they were unwilling and unable to acknowledge the sovereign kingship of God, but Hannah. Because, see, Hannah stands in direct opposition to that idea and reality. So that in these first few verses, she becomes a beautiful picture of what is going to unfold in the pages of the book of 1 Samuel. What can we learn from and about Hannah first, about her situation, that she was in great Despair. Friends, many of you this morning, you're in great despair. Your life is maybe falling apart around you. You are stricken with grief. You are troubled to the depths of your soul. I, I do not know of all of the situations, but friends, I know of some of them of the sorrow and the loss and the sadness that God's providence in this life often brings. But friends, what I want you to see is that Hannah knew the depth of despair. Let's just consider the situation. It, we're introduced to this guy, Elkanah, and it says here that he had two wives. One was Hannah and the other was Penina. And as you can only imagine... It was not going well at home. I don't know what guy ever thought this would be a good idea or how, the, how, how any man ever thought that this would work. And, and we read, as you get down in the text, that Elkanah was a godly man, and we're going to come back to that in just a moment. He often and regularly went from his city to worship and sacrifice the Lord to the Lord in Shiloh. And he took his wives and his sons, his children, he took his family and required that they be faithful to worship also. But when they would go, there was a problem, wasn't there? Because the difficult family relations at home went with them. It, 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 it made the trip. And so Hannah and Penina would go. And then if you look at verse 6, it says that her rival that is Penina, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Now, we don't know how or why or when uh, Elkanah came to have two wives, came to think that that was a good idea, but it is, it is in all likelihood because of the fact that Hannah, his beloved and first wife, was barren and was unable to have children. And friends, that was, I mean, that's a big deal in our lives today. The sorrow and the grief and the despair that comes upon women who are unable in God's providence to have children. Some of you may have dealt with that. Friends, Hannah knew that sadness. 
But to compound that sadness in their day, often men would find themselves a wife that could have children so that their name could be sustained, so that their lands and their farms and their goods could be sustained and taken care of, so that there would be help and work, that their family would be provided for. And so in some way, it was a deeper despair. And it is probably because of her barrenness It says the Lord had closed her womb. Friends, just as a side note, notice that it was God's desire that her womb be closed. I mean, you know, that's a difficult reality to to deal with, isn't it? But friends, it's a that may seem offensive to you. Friends, it's a great encouragement to hope to know that even the things in our life that we perceive to be as bad. They're there because of God's care and providence and provision for us. For for the Lord had a plan for Hannah. And a part of that plan was walking through the valley of barrenness. But so her rival then used to provoke her. I mean, you can only imagine how she would potentially make fun of her or demean her or disrespect her because I was the one that was able to have children, she might say. Because I can provide your beloved husband with things that you cannot. And so this animosity would have been building. And in addition to the despair of her barrenness, you can only imagine the despair that would have been heaped upon it by the provoking of the one who could have children. Friends, internally she was in despair. Outwardly she was in despair. Her home was divided. Her life was broken. Friends, she was in a horrible, horrible position. And and let me say this, it is often confusing. You know, I said, I said a moment ago that Elkanah was a righteous man. We know that from verse three, he was faithful to worship and brought his family. We know that what we'll see next week, beginning in verse 21, that he is interested that Hannah keep the vow that she is made to the Lord so that we have every reason to believe that, that Elkanah was a faithful man and a believer in God. Yet he had two wives. He was a polygamist. I mean, you know, we tend to look at the Old Testament, and there are so many examples, aren't there? We think about Abraham, who though he was not married to two in the midst of the same struggle and the desire for children and a wife that was barren, he knew another as his wife, didn't he? We look at men like Solomon, godly men in the Old Testament, who had wives upon wives. And we tend to think, oh, well, what's going on here? I thought God ordained marriage between a man and a woman, that the two should become one flesh. But there doesn't seem to be any, God's not smoking them with lightning bolts because of their deep sin and polygamy. Well, maybe it's not sin. Maybe he wasn't really that angry about it. Friends, let me just... Let me just encourage you that we never confuse the patience and mercy of God with our sin for his condoning of our sin. They are different. Friends, polygamy has always been wrong. And one of the reasons we know that God did not approve of it and that it was not according to God's plan for marriage is look at the turmoil that it caused in Elkanah's life and in Hannah's life. Friends, sin is destructive, and it brings forth death and turmoil. And even when we are involved in sin that we enjoy, 
And we think that it is just for us and that no one knows about it and it doesn't have any lasting effects on anybody else. Friends, be aware that your sin is destroying other people in your life. And Elkanah's sin, of, at least in this issue of marriage, his sin with relation to his wife, it caused deep despair in Hannah's life. God never intended for marriage to be this way. And so Hannah was reaping the effects and the cause of sin. And so, friends, I want you to see and I want you to realize and I, I simply want you to feel the weight of the despair that she would have bore. It was not her sin, was it, that was bringing about the sadness and the sorrow and the brokenness and the, and the division in her family. Yet she felt its effects all the same. And so the question then for us is where did she go? In her lowest point and in the depth of despair and in the darkest valley she knew, the question is, where did she go? Because remember, remember the refrain of judges that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And then remember the desire of the hearts of the children of Israel, as we will see even in 1 Samuel 8, that they longed for a king to meet their needs, to deliver them from their despair, to protect them from their adversaries, and to provide for their needs. Friends, let me, let me encourage you with the reality that Hannah is different. She did not need another king to meet her needs and to provide for her and to protect her and to deliver her from despair. She went to the king of kings. Friends, not only do we learn about Hannah and from Hannah that she was in deep despair, we learn something about her utter dependence upon God, don't we? Oh, Hannah, her husband, is confused, isn't he? Hannah weeps. She will not eat. And he doesn't understand why. He says, am I not to you more than ten sons? She can't go to her husband. She can't go to Panina. She has nowhere to go, but, but look at what happens. It says, after they had eaten in verse 9 and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now, Eli the priest was sitting beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and the razor shall touch his head. He, she committed him to be a Nazarite from birth. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more next week. But friends, all I want you to see this morning is utter confidence in and trust in the Lord, her God. In the depth of her despair, she rises and she goes before God in prayer. She weeps bitterly. She makes her requests known to him. Why would she do such a thing? Friends, because of several good theological understandings that Hannah had. She understood that God was in control as the sovereign king of everything that takes place in creation. 
that there is no occurrence, there is nothing that happens, there is not a blade of grass that dies, there is not something that comes into your life, there is nothing that happens unless it is so according to God's eternal and sovereign plan. And friends, Hannah believed that, that flowers died because God brought death. And she believed that sinners were restored because God brought life. And so where does she go? She goes to the Lord. She goes to the one who can. But not only does she believe that he can, that he is the sovereign king of all things, she also believes that he is deeply involved in the intimate details of the lives of his people. See, that's, that's an anomaly for kings. Do you understand that? That in their day and under the kingdoms and the kingships of the kings that even Israel would get like Saul, that they longed for, that they longed for something second to what they already had, something that was less than. Because those kings, yes, they would be sovereign in their little area and in their kingdom, however great or mighty it might have been. And they would have had a certain kingship and rule, they would have been able to provide to some degree and to protect. But what none of those kings would have done is what God does for his children. And that's know and care and work in every single detail to bring about their good that they might bring about his glory. See, friends, Hannah knew that God was the sovereign king of kings and that nothing happened in her life or in anybody else's life apart from the working and moving and the providence of God. And so she goes to him not only because he can, but because she knows he cares and he will hear her cry, attend her plea and answer him. Friends, that is a great encouragement to you this morning. Maybe like Hannah, you're found in despair. Friends, I have nothing to offer or tell you, but to tell you to go to the Lord. For he is the king of your heart. He has created you for a purpose. And he cares about every single struggle in your life. And so we, we learn about utter dependence upon God from Hannah. And then also we learn about being determined, being determined in our resolution to go to him and to continue to believe. Notice that she must have been barren for some time. How often is it in our life that when we struggle with something like that, that we are so quick to believe that God must have forgotten? Where we, we, we quit praying. We, know, we go to him for a short period of time and then we go no longer because we don't get the answer that we want. And we think that maybe he doesn't care and maybe he has forgotten. Friends, she was determined to continue to believe that God was God and that he did care. We know that because no matter how long his providence continued to close her womb, he, she continued to believe that it could be opened when he desired to open it. So no matter how long the despair lingers, she is found continuing to go to him. And then notice she goes, and it is not uh, without attack from the devil. <laughs> she is, her, her desire to go to the Lord is compromised a bit, isn't it? First, Elkanah comes to her. He's like, man, what is wrong with you? You don't have any reason to despair. Everything should be great in your life. You have me. 
right? But she's determined to go to the Lord, to bring her request to him and to pour her heart out to him. Then Eli, the priest in God's temple, accuses her of being a drunk. Now he, he relents and he blesses her and pray that God's, prays that God's favor would be with her. But in the midst of her prayer and plea to the Lord her God, he comes and accuses her of being a drunk. Yet she was determined to go. Friends, let me simply encourage you from Hannah's life this morning. Go to the Lord. You do not need another king. You do not need someone else to fix your problems. You do not need someone else to minister to your life and to your heart. God is the king of your heart. He is the king of all creation. There is nothing that comes into your life apart from his sovereign and eternal plan. And he intends all of them ultimately for your good, that you would be a part of bringing about his glory. So go to the Lord. Depend upon him and be determined not to be deterred. Go to him in confidence. Go to him in faith. It's not only what we learn about Hannah and from her, we also learn something significant about ourselves. Point number two, what do we learn about us in this passage? Friends, Hannah, in the context of the history of God's people and where this story comes to us. It's a fitting opening to the book of Samuel, isn't it? Because first, Hannah's Hannah's life and her devotion to the Lord and her faith and commitment to him, it stands as a stark condemnation against the children of Israel who did what was right in their own eyes and who demanded a king for themselves, doesn't it? who were lost in sin, wayward, wandering from God, and did not bring their despair and their needs to him. They did not honor his sovereign kingship. They did not continue to believe and understand. And so she stands condemning them by her life and by her actions that they would be so prone to wander and to look for another. But friends, it's not just her condemnation of the Israelites, is it? It's a fitting opening to the book, but it's also also a fitting story for us and for our hearts. Maybe you're not like me. But friends, I am prone to wander. And I am prone to forget the good hand and the favor and the kindness of God in my life. And I am prone to look for other resources. And I am prone to long for a king to lead me and protect me and give me the things I want. Friends, in Hannah's life and devotion and commitment to the Lord, her patient endurance of the difficult providences of God in her life and the deep and lasting trust and dependence upon God that she displays. Friends, it stands as a stark condemnation of my own sin and my own unwillingness to lean upon him. Friends, let us not forget in the New Testament, Jesus said, come to me. 
You that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he says. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, that is, I, that is our hope and that is, my, that is my, my message to you this morning. Friends, depend upon God and find your peace and your hope by trusting through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, whom you sent for our sin. God, thank you for Hannah, this godly woman, this story about her trust and faith and dependence upon you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to emulate her faith. That as we struggle in the midst of your difficult providences, that you would help us to do so patiently. God, that as we long for answers, as did Hannah, that you would help us to come to the only one who can give the answers. And God, as we saw in Hannah, we pray that you would help us to continue to believe and to be determined to believe and to not be deterred from our belief that not only can you give the answers, God, but that you care. That as the sovereign king over our hearts, you are intimately involved in every detail of our life. God, that you mean for our good, that you have a purpose for us, that you want us to trust you. And so, God, I pray very simply this morning for every person that is in this place today, God, that our hope, our joy, and our peace would be found in Jesus Christ. And that as we long for his return and the consummation of the promises that you have made to us through him, that we would be able to wait and to be patient and to trust you. God, speak to our hearts today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.